0: And beloved reptiles that hang around for a long time, bro. How about that double-headed turtle? I mean, what in the actual? Furk, bro. That thing goes was up with that. that think was fucking scary, man. That left head is like viciously snapping at
1: that dude's hand, and the right head's just like, "Hey, man, yeah, put me down, bro. Come on, let's put me
0: down." <laughs> what the hell is going on over there? What is that racket? <laughs> yeah, right. Because you know, like that head is like totally unaware of the completely other completely unaware existence. Yeah, he's just like, "Oh, man, something's happening. Something's happening again. What is that?" Yeah. Just no idea. Yeah, and then that shell just mangled like it's not a turtle shell. No, it did not look like a regular turtle shell at all, but I mean, we didn't really see like the process of them wrangling the beast. It could have happened in the transport, True. you know what I mean? <laughs> wrangling <laughs> the yeah, beast. Yeah, they're just not being careful at all. I mean, I don't know how careful you could be. You got two heads to look out for. I mean, you know, it's a tough, it be a tough customer. All right. Well, strange looking turtle. Yeah. Talk about a turtle head popping out. You Mm. know what I mean? Uh,
1: Man, I would not want to experience a double turtle head. I mean, that would be awkward.
0: No kidding. You'd have some real problems there, especially if they're snapping like that.
1: If they're snapping, yeah. I mean, one's enough, but you got two in there like that and snapping (laughs) at each other. Well, anyway, before we get into this episode, I'll just say here uh, the sources for today's episode come primarily from Wikipedia. But we also used various sources, including BBC, ABC, AP News, NBC, and some others. Now, Scott, what do you have for us uh, today for your 3 for 3?
0: Yeah, welcome to 3 for 3. A little bit of weird news on the up and ups. So all three of my stories today come from AP News. The first one is out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And it was posted yesterday, March 18th, a couple in Baton Rouge is going to be allowed by the state to keep a 22-pound pet nutria that they've affectionately named Nudie that's been living with them for over two years. Nudie. Nice. Yeah, I guess uh, initially the couple received a bunch of complaints about sequestering the wild animal, and initially the state did try to take the nutria and say they were not allowed to keep the wild animal. But in light of that, more than 17,000 people in the community signed a petition for Nudie to be left with the family.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, so after that, the state agreed to allow the family to sign a special permit in order to keep the nutria under the exception in the state law, and all will be well for Nudie the nutria. So there are exceptions. So you you, you can't keep wild animals,
1: but there's an exception to the rule.
0: Well, supposedly it's just you gotta sign that permit and it's all above water at that point. So
1: I could go get a bald eagle and be like hey,
0: man, <laughs> you just jump and get straight to the eagle. You, to you don't wanna start with like you don't wanna start with a little warm up wild animal like a bobcat or something. No man, right? if you're gonna
1: go for it, hell no. If you're gonna go for it, you go for the one that's untouchable. You go for the wow. one that is at the Yeah, top. okay.
0: I feel yeah. like that's something that yeah, would make yeah, it all the way to the Supreme Court before you were allowed to Continue on with that. You said it <laughs> just set a legal precedent for all of the future.
1: It, it would set a legal precedent. That's like setting a legal precedent for arresting a previous president.
0: Oh, man. Keeping it relevant, Coop. I appreciate that. Speaking of wild animals, uh, again, this next story comes out of Cincinnati, Ohio on March 10th. An African serval cat. And for those of you that don't know what a serval is, it looks kind of like a small cheetah has made a full recovery after launching out of its owner, quote-unquote, car during a police traffic stop where it escaped. Oh. Shit. Yeah, pretty crazy. The, the cat was found with a broken leg, and it was taken to the Cincinnati Animal Care Shelter, where it was determined to also have cocaine in its system. What? This cat? this, this Yeah, cat. bro. Cocaine cat.
1: That's like the cocaine bear.
0: So now we have a cocaine cat and a cocaine bear. Yes, yes. I th- yeah, I think it's contagious. uh, But apparently, (laughs) you know what? We better not.
1: We better not let the squirrels get the cocaine. Then we're in for a
0: fucking ride, man. Yeah. Well, I don't want to live in that world. Apparently, these wild cats can reach up to about forty pounds. And after the recovery at the shelter, this particular cat has been released to the Cincinnati Zoo, where it belongs. Just gonna say that real quick. Wait. Um, So where did these
1: people get this cat?
0: Well, we don't really know because uh, it's illegal to have right. wild animal. You know, people get trade. You know, they trade these things and they find them in places. And yeah, I didn't do. You know, I didn't look into it very deeply, but it's just another you know story about a- I know
1: there's like illegal animal trading going exactly. on.
0: Exactly. But- yeah, and this person should not be keeping this thing, man. I mean, it's a wild animal predator. You know, like eventually it's gonna. Wake do we up have
1: me. information? Do we have information on how? It got cocaine in its system.
0: No, not yet. Not yet. But I believe authorities are looking into that. Um, But at least for now, we know the cat is safe. Uh, The shelter that actually rehabilitated the cat receives more than 8,000 animals every year and was quoted on the story after the transfer of the serval saying, instead of trying to keep a wild animal as a pet, you could save a whole lot of money and get a really awesome house cat at your local animal shelter. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point of getting one of these exotic pets is because everyone has your random house animal. Someone everyone wants something different. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> oh, a
1: cat a fucking all these like illegal animals like like those are trophy animals like you want to keep those and yeah, collect them. Yeah, collect them all.
0: there was a I just saw a TikTok video actually the other day. This girl in a Eastern European country was sitting right next to a like a panther, a black panther. In the cold, you could see its breath in the cold. And she was just like, oh, he's grumpy today. I'm like, well, yeah, we'll see how many more of those you post. Yikes. (laughs) My last story is also out of AP News, and it is from Bangkok, Thailand. Bangkok, Thailand from March 15th. Great place. Officials there are currently searching for a radioactive cylinder that has mysteriously gone missing from a local power plant. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, the steam the steam power plant is located sixty miles east of Bangkok in a town called Pratchenbury. What? Yeah. You know. Pratchenbury. Pratchenbury. The cylinder containing the radioactive material KCM one hundred thirty seven is about a foot long and fifty five pounds and was discovered missing from a piece of machinery Friday the tenth of march damn yeah so is this super dangerous?
1: is kcm-137 really really dangerous
0: well apparently it's used in certain devices to measure the humidity and velocity of liquids and the thai health officials are warning that prolonged exposure could lead to sores hair loss skin rashes fatigue and vomiting to name a few and in long-term cases of exposure death
1: I mean, we know what radiation can do, and this thing's definitely putting off radiation,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, like, if anybody gets into the contents of this thing, there's just no telling. what co- they're, they're toast, basically. Jesus, bro. Like,
1: who, uh, yeah. man, what is it for? Why
0: did, Why is it gone? Why is it missing? I guess
1: that is the question. How does something like this yeah. go missing from a nuclear power right.
0: plant? Right. What's the end game?
1: I feel it's an inside you know, job. someone knew it was there and they took yeah, it, yeah,
0: I I think so too. You
1: know that could be worth I think the money. I'm trying
0: to sell it, you know, on the black market. Yeah. Apparently, officials say that the material, the KCM, is kind of like salt, and that it can disperse very easily if that container is open. So if it ever does get open and any comes out, there's just going to be no collecting it. You know, once it's out, you know, there. just
1: evaporate or something. I
0: don't know if it if it just it'll hit the ground and disappear, and it's like you can't pick up every little bit of salt. Mm. Yeah,
1: is there like I don't know? Are they how are they trying to get it
0: back? Are they offering anything, or what's it, going on with that? Yeah, they're they're offering like <laughs> no fifteen hundred dollars for its safe return.
1: Fifteen hundred dollars, one thousand five hundred American dollars for this thing. <laughs>
0: Maybe in Pritchinbury, that's a lot, man. But well, I'm yeah, gonna do this. I let just, me see. I I'm
1: going to do a little conversion. Uh, comes out to 50,000 baht.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like a lot. Which, yeah, I mean, it might be. I don't know what the cost of living is over there in Bangkok. I think you can get some but... pretty good food for only a few baht over there.
1: It seems if they're, only, if they're offering $1,500, that must be a lot of money to them, right?
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, if it was me, you I'd be like, so. hell no, I'm not going to look for your freaking KCM 137 death salt. Like, I don't, I don't think so. Fuck no, man. I don't but, know. Uh, yeah. Well, that'll do it for my three for three. Until next time with more weird news. Back to you, Coop. Awesome. Well,
1: uh, Scott, I heard you know a lot about flying. Uh,
0: Yeah, that's pretty general. But I mean, I do know a little bit about flying solo. Uh, I also know a little bit about flying high. Know a couple of those. I okay. know a little bit about a couple of those. All right.
1: Well, uh what what do you know about flying itself,
0: the actual act of flying? Oh. Um well, I guess if we're going by the classical definition or more so the modern Definition.
1: I guess I should say, what do you know about flying an airplane?
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Let's really uh, narrow that down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you that uh, from my limited understanding, it takes a lot of time to become a pilot. Yeah. And I think some necessary equipment might include some very large balls. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I do. Fairly uh, spacious gonads. Ah. For the lady pilots. Ah, yes, we do yes. love our lady pilots, don't we?
1: We love our lady pilots. Well, you're correct there. On all accounts. It also appears, after doing some cursory research, that female pilots are safer. But that's just my opinion based off
0: today's episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's some deep research she got going on. The uh, anecdotal account of one. Self. Self. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that might be true for pilots, but uh, what's the old ancient proverb again? Oh, uh, um, it's like women, drivers, no survivors or mm. something like that. I think that was in Plato's Republic, (laughs) actually. Well, I think you might be referring
1: to a quote in that work of his, which goes, If women are expected to do the same work as men we must teach them the same things.
0: Oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, I was watching old reruns of Married with Children, actually.
1: Oh, Golden. Uh, what was that group Al Bundy was part of?
0: Uh, hmm, hold on. What the on. hell was that it's, shit? Uh, oh, yeah, Ma'am. right? The acronym? MAM? No MAM. Oh, no, no MAM. No <laughs> MAM, which stood for National Organization of Men Against Amazonian Masterhood
1: amazonian masterhood that's right (laughs) and he he started the anti-feminist group because women were what showing up at the bowling league or something at the bowling night and taking up all the lanes yeah yeah exactly
0: and there was like a strip joint in there and what like old chicago like chicago yeah right yeah yeah yep chicago uh, yeah, in the
1: intro, because there's a shot of that famous Clarence Buckingham Memorial Fountain, one of the largest fountains in the world. And yeah, it shoots water 150 feet high. It's a beautiful. Ah, uh, yes.
0: Fountain. Magnificent. Well, the strip bar turned into a coffee shop, and Al and his buddies were not happy about that.
1: Would any man be happy about that? Or the strippers.
0: Yeah, you know, I don't now think now they're they... out of work. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think they really gave that perspective in the show, though, which would have been yeah. a good angle. I think they missed they opportunity. They have.
1: Yeah, I mean they spent too much time on obese women in the shoe shop. Ah, uh, yeah, the shoe shop. Yes, sir. Yeah, and the mall. As well, does. tell me, Scott, did you ever mess around on any of those flight
0: simulators or anything growing up? Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny you ask because I did have a game called Flight Simulator back in the Ooh. early 90s with, the, you know, those old joysticks. It just had one button on the thumb oh, yeah. and then like two red buttons on the yep. side of that and it made like a creaking sound like every time you tried to move it you know <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. that was cutting edge man cutting edge cutting edge yeah the squeaks were actually meant yeah it, you put, had for to for have a reason. this exactly it was realism Yeah,
1: it's all about the realism. I really feel like I'm flying.
0: (laughs) This must be what pilots use. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and you know, I used to spend countless hours playing GTA Four or whatever, whichever one it was. Just fly the planes around and do the acrobatic stunts, like going under bridges and you know weaving through streets, dive bombing people. Pretty much anything except for the actual missions.
0: Oh yeah, why would you do an actual mission? That's just like yeah, super boring. Boring. I pretty much did the same thing. I would also ride the mountain bike everywhere, and I spent a lot of time. (laughs) i actually spent a lot of time i had the cheat codes right Mm -hmm. so i would spawn like a parachute immediately and i would spawn a helicopter and i would take the helicopter like way up in the sky and i'd be listening to edm and then i would just like skydive down nice just like to the edm just like flying around and you know sometimes you stick the landing and sometimes you don't fuck those games are fun man i should get back
1: into that shit yeah Classic, you know, just you know, it was just fun waste of time, you know. Yeah, dude. And actually, when I was twelve, bro, my family and I we went to an air local airport. They like a small little airport with a bunch of Cessnas, little small Cessnas, yeah, private planes. And they were doing these like they weren't free, but it was like cheap flights, and they'd uh give you know anybody a little flight up there. But I took one of these flights with just a pilot and I in like a six seater. I think it was a four or six seater Cessna, and we got up in the air. And just on the side of me was like basically a joystick, right? Okay. And then the pilot had his joystick over there and all the little controls and shit. So we're up in the air. I don't know, maybe 5,000, 6,000 feet or something. And he's like, all right, take controls. And I look over at him like, Whoa. Know, well, are you serious? He's like, yeah, grab the joystick. You go ahead, and control it. I'm like, oh, my God. So I grabbed the joystick. Sweet. I'm, I'm flying a fucking plane. Like, I'm literally flying a plane. And I was like, all right, man, I'm done, dude. And he's like, all right. (laughs) It was scary, bro. I can't believe you let me do that. Whoa,
0: no way, dude. Yeah,
1: I I mean, never did it again. I don't don't know, man. Planes scare me.
0: Yeah, they are kind of scary. But I also feel regret that I didn't get to fly one as a young man now. Well, thanks. I'm sorry. I'm going to rethink my whole (laughs) early existence. It's
1: changed your whole perspective on life.
0: (laughs) What (laughs) what could have been? Yes.
1: Slipping away.
0: slipping away
1: well scott (laughs) let me tell you the story of a man who took his dream of flying to a whole other level now forget about the simulators and video
0: games let's talk about the real thing are you talking about one of the Wright brothers or something
1: fuck no those guys were imbeciles
0: oh well yeah true they had no idea what they were doing reckless a lot of wasted time should have been playing checkers or like rummy cube or something a little bit more productive right yeah in hindsight but no, all right, we're talking about
1: Richard Bebo Russell, a 28-year-old with no experience as a pilot whatsoever, and who worked as ground crew for Horizon Air at the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport.
0: Oh, great airport and even better food. Right. Well, on August
1: 10th, 2018, Russell went to work as usual as part of a tow team who positioned aircraft on the runway or reposition aircraft, you know, with no further flights that day. They just put those in a parking position. By all accounts, Richard was a very nice guy, a quiet guy, a guy who was well-liked by his coworkers. workers uh, He pretty much had a solid life. He was born in Key West, Florida. He moved to Wasilla, Alaska at age seven. And while there, he would attend high school where he would be a wrestler and also was into track and field. And he also played football and did well in high school, but did not do so well in college while at the Valley City State University in North Dakota. He was actually recruited there to play football in hopes to land with the Indianapolis Colts. so Oh, man. Even to be recruited. Yeah.
0: yeah, seriously.
1: But he would leave there and end up in Coos Bay, Oregon, to no. attend Southwestern Oregon Community College, which is where he would meet his future wife while at the Campus Crusade for Christ meeting. Suffice to say, he was an active member in his church and was somewhat of a leader in the local Christian youth ministry called Young Life.
0: Also, for the record... Young life, my rap name back in middle school. No shit, rough life, man. Let me tell you,
1: young life. You uh, you got something for us?
0: Well, Coop, that was a long time ago. So left that
1: life behind, huh?
0: <laughs> Everybody, young life. Damn, bro. Yeah, that's uh, that's about the extent of it. That's what I got left. Just, uh, just I don't know the where remnants. It came from. I just felt remnants of once was. <laughs> yeah, it was just the remnants. <laughs> <laughs> slipping away.
1: Well, once he was married, they would start a bakery in North Bend, Oregon. And after a few years, they would sell a business so his wife could be closer to her family. And they would move to Sumner, Washington, which is where he found work with Horizon Air as ground crew. Rhubarb pie capital of the world, Dag. Man, I could go for some rhubarb pie right now. When I was a kid, well, we used to take yeah. the stocks and just put some sugar on them and just gobble them up. Makes for a great stomachache. Whoa, I was like
0: ballsy, bro. <laughs> Rhubarb's delicious. Damn. I love rhubarb. Haven't had it in a long time. Ugh. Not a fan? Yeah, just pie form. Just pie form for yeah, me. I don't like the stocks. Not a, not a fan of the stocks, my <laughs> friend. It's just like celery, but it's sweet.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm good on that. Richard would then attend Washington State University Global Campus, majoring in social science. And it was his plan to become part of management with Horizon Air, but also wanted to become a military officer once he had received his degree. The only real complaint he had about his job at Horizon Air were the wages that the ground crew made in comparison to the other positions. Essentially, ground crew are at the bottom rung of the airline hierarchy, as, as we all know. And at the end of it all, there was really nothing to indicate that Richard Bebo Russell was suffering from any mental health crisis then or ever. Still, there is varying suspicion as to why he chose to steal the Horizon Air Bombardier Q400, commonly referred to as the Dash 8 in the first place. Now, this aircraft can carry up to 78 passengers, and each plane costs around $30 million to produce. Woo, holy shit. That's just for one plane? Yeah, man. But that's nothing. The most expensive plane is the Boeing 747-8 VIP, which costs nearly half a billion dollars. But that plane's only meant for the worst of humankind.
0: Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, all the CEOs and politicians and oil execs. Yeah, yep. Yeah.
1: So let's go to the day this all went down. As I said, he arrived to work as he normally would around 2.30 p.m. to start his afternoon shift. Nothing seemed odd about him to anyone. Everything was normal, as normal as it could be, as FBI agent Matt Scott would later tell Rolling Stone. Richard wouldn't steal the plane until about 7.15 p.m. when he saw his opportunity. And since he was ground crew, he had access to the plane so he could just initiate the auxiliary power unit in order to tow the planes to where they needed to be. So he first connected the tow vehicle, otherwise known as a tug, to the plane, removed the wheel blocks from the plane, then entered the plane. After initiating the auxiliary power, he would then toggle the essential switches and levers in their appropriate sequence in order to start the engines. And once the engines were started, he hopped out, got back in the tug, and positioned the plane toward the taxiway for takeoff. Now you might be asking yourself, well, did nobody notice this? Well, no, nobody noticed. But up to that point, Other than aiming it toward the runway, nothing was out of the norm for him to do what he was doing, you know? And there was one security guard, but they were busy dealing with some car that was at the entrance gate, which wasn't very close to where Richard was. Now, a report by the Port of Seattle, which operates SeaTac Airport, said that even had the guard noticed,
0: there was no time for him to do anything anyway. Richard was off. I mean, the thing is about planes, you know, because this is really crazy. Once you're up in it, And you're away from the taxiway. Like, what the hell is a human going to do? I mean, you can't scale up the landing gear real quick. You can't jump high enough to do. (laughs) I mean, when a plane is moving, it's moving, bro. Like, good luck. Good luck. The guard runs out to the tarmac, waving his arm. Stop! No! Gets in front of him. Stop it! Stop! Ah! (laughs) Come back! Yeah, there's just no way, dude. So, yeah, once he's off and rolling, everybody's hit. Yeah, bro. And this is going to get crazy.
1: So before we proceed, I want to mention here, because this is pretty badass, and you'll see why in a little while, but after all this happened, Richard Bebo Russell was given the name Sky King for what he did throughout his 73-minute flight. And I have to mention that now, because I want to refer to him as Sky King rather than Richard or Bebo or Russell.
0: Nice. Yeah, dude. Sky King. That's a beast name. Certainly not an easy nickname to obtain. You can't just call anybody the Sky King, you know, for no reason. No, you have to. You have to earn that shit. Absolutely. So
1: Sky King then runs up into the cockpit where he switches on the levers for the propellers, which fired right up. From there, he turned on all the necessary controls and took full control of the aircraft and taxied it onto the runway. It is here when he was finally spotted. Air traffic control radio to the aircraft. Aircraft on Charlie lining up runway 16 center. Call your call sign. Sky King didn't reply, so traffic control more sternly said, Who's the Dash 8 holding on runway 16 center? Again, there was no response. Another pilot who was on the runway and listening to the communication would radio in and say that the aircraft was rolling down the runway, but the wheels on both sides were smoking. And at about 7.33 p.m., Sky King would throttle the engines and take off toward Mount Rainier toward the south. Air traffic would immediately call in to scramble jets to pursue him. And this is recorded. You can actually watch this all on YouTube.
0: Yeah, when when was this like 2018 or something like that?
1: Yeah, 2008 uh, August 10th, 2018.
0: Okay. And I mean, were are there people on board? Like I'm assuming no. I'm assuming he jumped in there, but Right, yeah, there's no one on board and he knew that and that's why he took it. Okay, okay. So yeah, then there probably wasn't like any real thought of like a 9/11 anniversary type of situation or something like that. Either.
1: Uh, I mean, I think Traffic control. I mean, I think that's an automatic assumption immediately that it is 9/11 when a plane is not authorized to take off, right? But I mean, they realize it's not as they talk through this. But yeah, we'll sure, get to it. Sure, sure. So after about ten minutes of flying around, his voice would be heard on the radio, and traffic control would ask a question to which Sky King's voice is heard saying, "Man, I'm ground service agent. I don't know what that is." <laughs> that's
0: crazy, bro.
1: At least he was honest, right? Yeah, he's very dude. He's a very honest guy. But we would actually use we would use the actual recording here. But as you can imagine, it sounds really bad. So I'll just mimic I'll mimic his voice as best as possible. Nice. And uh, yeah, he would go he would go on to tell the control that his plan was just to start it up, get it to go a couple of hours, I guess. And he would then admit that he didn't really know what he was doing or how to land the plane. And Sky King would say, "I wasn't really planning on landing it. I just kind of want to do a couple maneuvers, see what it can do before I put her down." You know.
0: See what it can do. Hmm. That's uh, that's pretty bold, mm-hmm. pretty brash. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. The yeah. So Sky King would spot Mount Rainier far in the distance and begin to fly toward it. And remember, this guy has no training. Now, he would perform a sweet, sweet left bank around this 14,500-foot volcano. And in the process, he would encounter turbulence and he would vomit.
0: <laughs> like, this guy's crazy.
1: Yeah. So once he looped around the peak, he headed back towards Seattle with an accelerated speed. And at this point, he had been flying for about 15 minutes, and Air Defense was finally able to scramble his F-15s. Uh, he told Control that he threw up a little bit, and then he said, Man, I'm sorry about this. I hope this doesn't ruin your day. This is when he told Air Traffic Control his name and asked, What do you think I should do, FAA guy? <laughs> FAA guy? FAA guy? who was identified as Andrew Drury by the FBI, would respond, Just flying the plane around. You seem comfortable with that? Sky King responds with a bit of bravado. Oh, hell yeah. It's a blast, man. I played video games before, so, you know, I know what I'm doing a little bit. Everything is peachy. (laughs) Just did a little circle around Rainier. It's beautiful.
0: Dude, this guy is just, like, joyriding, having the best time of his life. Loving it up there. At this moment, you know. I mean, video games. Like, that's his resume. Video games.
1: That's his resume, man. (laughs) This his LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. Then he would say, I think I got some gas to go check out the Olympics.
0: Interesting fact here, just as an aside, those mountains, the Olympics, were originally named Sunadu by the Duwamish native tribe.
1: Sunadu. I wonder what that means. That is interesting.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, I know. Well, for some reason by your tone, I'm not convinced that you do. I'm not convinced that you do. Well, guess we found ourselves in a precarious situation here.
1: Yeah, bit of a soft pickle, as they say.
0: Hmm. Well, what do you think? Shall we move on? I think we shall. Well, carry on, then. Thank you. By about 8 p.m.,
1: Andrew, (laughs) the control, started trying to get Sky King to land the plane. And here's another interesting fact. The Dash 8 is often referred to as the Crash 8 by pilots due to how difficult it is to land. Andrew would direct him to a runway at McCord Field, which was off to Sky King's right. McCord Field is actually a very large Army and Air Force installation. And Sky King was obviously against the idea. He would say, Oh man, those guys rough me up if I try landing there. I think I might mess something up too there. I wouldn't want to do that. Then he would say, Oh, they probably got anti-aircraft.
0: All right. Well, at least, you know, it's pretty clear that he's not up for causing anybody any damage. You know, he's not trying to hurt anyone. So, you know, that's points four, I guess. Points four.
1: Yeah. And Andrew would tell him, no, they don't have anything like that. We're just trying to find a place for you to land, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sky King would respond. Yeah, not quite ready to bring it down just yet. But holy smokes, I got to stop looking at the fuel because it's going down quick. And after a moment of silence, he would continue. This is probably like jail time for life, huh? I mean, I hope it is for a guy like me.
0: Yeah, you know, I guess I didn't really think about the punishment for something like that. But I have to you know, there's like all these federal regulations and and stuff like that just to be able to fly a plane from one place to another. So stealing a plane? I just think yeah you're in for a world of trouble right? I mean how could you not be, you know? I think
1: I think that's a really it's that's a federal offense for sure and uh it's a lot of time to steal a plane and fly it, especially across uh state lines too cuz he's going to Oregon, and flying around Oregon, Washington. Yeah,
0: true. I mean he's, you know, flying above national parks and Yeah.
1: It's still a 30 million dollar airplane too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Probably going to be in trouble. What do you do? It's done, bro. Might as well ride it out, I guess. Yeah,
1: ride it out. So it was around this time that people on the ground around the northern part of Puget Sound would begin to take notice of the jet. And many people would start recording Sky King flying around. And the videos are fucking so crazy, man. Especially when you consider the fact that this is some random guy with no actual piloting experience. This is also when Andrew would get another pilot on the radio to help Sky King land. Andrew would say, apparently he's a grounds crewman with Horizon, I guess, and he just needs some help controlling his aircraft. And Sky King could hear this, of course, because he's listening, and he would interject. He says, I mean, I don't need that much help. I've played some video games before. I would like to figure out how to get this cabin, make it pressurized or something, so I'm not feeling so lightheaded.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's crazy.
1: Yeah. And the pilot who was called in would ask about the flat flight data, such as his alt- altitude and speed. And Sky King would say, Yeah, I don't know anything about the autopilot. I'm just kind of hand-flying right now. Then we hear Sky King say, Minimum wage. We'll chalk it up to that. Maybe it'll grease some gears a little bit with the higher-ups. And the radio connection would go in and out of range. And at one point, Sky King would say in a, s- a rather serious demeanor, "Cause he pops back on and he says, Damn it, Andrew! People's lives are at stake here. And it sounds like he's actually alarmed about the severity of his actions. Then and Andrew would respond with, Now, now don't say stuff like that. And Sky King would reply, Nah, I don't want to hurt no one. I just want you to whisper sweet nothings in my ear. He's got a sense of humor on him too.
0: Yeah, or at least, you know, um lack of pressurization delusions right you know <laughs> might be starting <laughs> yeah, to get to, to him yeah might here. be starting to get to him a little bit
1: but after about a minute of radar chatter sky king asks hey you think if i land this successfully alaska will give me a job as a pilot andrew would say i think they would give you a job doing anything if you could pull this off and sky king responds yeah right now nah, i'm a white guy And Andrew then suggests landing at McCord Field or attempt a water landing in the Puget Sound, to which Sky King responds, Dang, you talked to McCord yet? Because I don't think I'd be happy with you telling me to land like that because I could mess some stuff up.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Just flies in there all Mr. Magoo, you know, played by Leslie Nielsen, of course. Dude has no experience and he's flying the Crash 8, as pilots refer to it, for how freaking hard it is to land. Like, good luck, bro. Exactly, but you know what? If not Mr. Magoo, it could be
1: any character Leslie Nielsen played. Frank Drebin, for example.
0: Yes, well, when I see five weirdos dressed in togas stabbing a guy in the middle of the park in full view of a hundred people, I shoot the bastards. That's my policy. Ah, yes, Naked Gun, some of the best in the history of film.
1: So after that, Sky King requests the coordinates of a particular orca whale named Taliqua that had recently made the news after its calf had died. Taliqua then carried or pushed or propelled the carcass of her calf all around the Salish Sea as she cried hysterically in mourning.
0: Shedding tears, you know, while she went, which raised the water level up to dangerous heights, I'm sure, putting the coastal cities at the risk of a flood. Mm -hmm. I remember the newspapers. Caused a lot of panic, right? A lot of fear. Smelled terrible as well.
1: Terrible smell of fear. At about 8.15 p.m., the F-15s would finally approach the Sky King as he began to head to the Olympic Mountains. As he was flying over the Puget Sound, he said, I got a lot of people that care about me, and it's going to disappoint them to hear that I did this. I'd like to apologize to each and every one of them. I'm just a broken guy. Got a few screws loose, I guess. Never really knew it till now.
0: Damn, took him to this point to figure it out, I guess. Pretty sad, but at the same time, kind of understandable. Like people with extreme stuff going on in their lives do extreme things. You know, you just don't know until you know. That's right. You know? Yeah, you'd really, you really—you would never really know until
1: you know, you know? <laughs> it's deep. <laughs> Once he gets near the Olympic Mountains, he comments on how gorgeous they are. Andrew tries to get him to bank left and return towards SeaTac so they don't lose radio frequency. But Sky King says, Hey, pilot guy, can this thing do a, a backflip, you think? And he gets no response for many precious moments. And at about 8.30 p.m., the Sky King says, I think I'm gonna land it, um, like uh, in a safe, safe kind of manner. Then he says, "I think I'm a, i am think I'm gonna try to do a barrel roll, and if that goes good, then I'm just gonna nose down and call it a night."
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna do a barrel roll, and if that goes good, two words: Sky King. Sky King, bro. Seriously.
1: And at this point, Andrew's like, well, now before you go on and do that, let's
0: just talk about this. Oh, for sure. I bet they were just like, okay, guys. He's probably asking everybody else in the tower, like, come on, man. Does anybody have any... What am I supposed to say to this motherfucker? Suggestions. What do I do? Yeah, like somebody give me something. You know, everybody else is just conducting their business as usual. Like Andrew's the only one dealing with this crisis situation. (laughs) Like, Like, hey
1: man, that's your call, bro. That's on you.
0: They're like, dude, this guy's talking about doing barrel rolls, man. Like, give me something. Give me something.
1: (laughs) Everyone's just getting binoculars out. Like, I'm watching
0: this (laughs) shit. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like nobody's like appreciating the gravity of the situation except for poor Andrew. He's having, a, <laughs> right. he's having a heart attack like flight controller's job is stressful enough as it is oh, dealing, like, really dealing with this shit today Got
1: big shoes to fill <laughs> so S- sky king was definitely contemplating his actions and he would say you know the sights went by so fast i was thinking like i'm gonna have to have this moment of serenity you know i'll be able to take in all the sights i mean there's a lot of pretty stuff but i uh, i think it's they're prettier in a different context and after several minutes of radio chatter, Andrew and Sky King talk about how much fuel he has left. And he says, Oh, man, not enough. Not enough to get by uh, like uh, 760, 760 pounds. And after about another minute, Sky King says kind of to himself, I'm going to do this barrel roll real quick. And it's kind of eerie because he's like telling it to himself, you know? Yeah, that is freaky. Almost like he's, like he's convincing himself, himself to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this barrel roll real quick
1: and Andrew again tells him to reconsider and just bank right and I think he was just trying to keep him over water rather than over any uh, populated area so Sky King says I wouldn't mind just shooting the shit with you guys but it's all business you know and after a few more minutes he says I feel like I need to be what do you think like 5,000 feet at least to be able to pull this barrel roll off and moments later we hear another person on radio say He'd be a hero if he could pull off this landing.
0: <laughs> oh, man. He's all like, I feel like he's speculating the, uh, how high he needs to be to like pull off this barrel roll with no previous flying experience whatsoever. Uh, whatsoever, like other than playing some video games in the past. Mm-hmm. This is frame of reference. 5,000 feet. 5,000 feet doesn't seem very high. No, it doesn't. To Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. See, I'm not going to speculate because I know nothing. About it. Right. This guy's well, all flying weekend. around at this point. Oh boy. Steals an airplane, lands it, possibly gets called a hero by the pilot <laughs> over the radio. Priceless. Priceless, bro.
1: Man, so I wonder how he calculated 5,000 feet. I mean, he knew something about this.
0: I, I know. Yeah, where did he get this from? So, uh, yeah, maybe he knows more than he's letting on.
1: So around 8.43 p.m., the Sky King attempts the barrel roll he was working himself up to do in the 108-foot-long passenger aircraft over the southern part of Puget Sound, and he completes it.
0: (laughs) Oh, what a baller! Sky King.
1: Sky King. The next thing we hear is from a surgeon Captain Bill, who had been advising him with his flight, and he says, All right, Rich. Congratulations! You uh did that. Now let's uh let's try to land that airplane safely and not hurt anybody on the ground. This guy King responds with, "All right, ah, damn it! I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't want to. I was kind of hoping that was gonna be it, you know." And he gives a little laugh in there too. He's pretty stoked. He just successfully completed a barrel roll in a commercial airliner. An untrained pilot. And that maneuver
0: is extremely difficult to do, even for a veteran pilot. Dude, this guy is the Sky King. I mean, has that ever even been done before? Like, for fun? Like, not on accident? You know? Commercial airliner, they're just doing barrel rolls? Okay, so let me
1: clarify this. What Sky King actually did was more of a straight backflip. More, or more of what's called a loop than a barrel roll. Oh. So he did a roll at the very
0: end of the loop. But it was much more of a loop than it was a roll. Whoa, that's like super dangerous. You know, like the the uh, possibility of stalling is just so
1: Yeah, and the extreme. and extreme the pressure of you know? like the G forces on the aircraft integrity.
0: Yeah. I mean he clearly knew because he was like, I was sort of hoping that was gonna be it. Yeah, you know, he thought he's he, was, hoping gonna, he was, was, just was gonna hit exactly like he's gonna be toast. And all that was recorded, man, so you can see that on YouTube.
1: And now a barrel roll would be to flip the plane on its axis, or what's called a roll, where the wings
0: flip in a spin as the plane goes forward. Yeah, that's what I was initially picturing.
1: That's a roll. Um, some would say it's both a roll and a loop, but a barrel roll has been done in a commercial airliner before. In 1955, a very trained pilot by the name of Tex Johnson did a controlled barrel
0: roll with a commercial airliner. And get this, he did it in a Dash 8, the same craft. Oh, wow. So unbeknownst to Sky King, there was actually a mechanical precedent for yeah. this. Yeah, it's happened. Oh, sweet. Well, lucky day.
1: Even though they did different maneuvers. but right, right, right. The pilots in the F-15s are nothing short of amazed and probably even a little jealous. One says, <laughs> he just completed a barrel roll. And the second responds, confirm, he did a barrel roll? And the first says, affirm. Now, dude, this is crazy. So the Sky King managed to do that backflip over the water, and at his lowest point, he was only about 10 feet from the surface of the water, dude. No way. Yeah, man. Like, he, all 10 feet from the water, and he went right back up. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, man. And after several more minutes of radio chatter, we hear Sky King come back over the radio, and he says, not for long. I feel like one of my engines is going out or something. And that would be the last transmission we would hear from the Sky King, Richard Bebo Russell. May he rest in peace.
0: What? Whoa! What? What happened?
1: Well, only about three minutes after completing the backflip, and only moments after stating that he thought one of the engines was failing, he would just nosedive into Ketrin Island between Tacoma and Olympia. And the crash would only spark a two-acre fire, which did very little damage. On the opposite side of the tiny island, and it's a really small island, something like 200 acres, There was a cabin that was occupied at the
0: time. Whoa, that would be so intense. You just see this like jet, you know, heading towards your small island. You're like, no, no way. You're like, no way. Where do I go? Where do I go? Where do I go? Did that jet just do a barrel roll? Oh, man. Now it's coming straight for me. (laughs) No shit, huh? So the jets were scrambled to intercept him, right? Initially.
1: Yeah, two two F-15s, they were scrambled. uh, They were armed, um, but they were only authorized to either suit up or headbutt or execute sharp sharp turns in front of the Sky King. Um, And they wanted to drop warning flares to get his attention and shit. But, you know, Sky King's skills in the very sky that he was king of were far too great for the F-15 pilots.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they were going to do scare tactics or something like that to make him nervous. And this guy had no fear, like, clearly. You know, like he was he was doing what he was going to do. And a couple dorky flares weren't going to make him be like, okay, (laughs) guess I'll land the plane now. You know, like, oh, don't flare me. Wow. So you're telling me an untrained pilot guy that stole a commercial jet. He outperformed two F-15s on that day. Sky King. Sky King.
1: Sky King. And they actually said that they couldn't do much in terms of positioning themselves safely within because of his erratic flight path.
0: Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, you wouldn't want to cause the commercial plane to crash in a populated area. Populated area. No,
1: and that could have been easy because they could have pushed him off to a direction and he could have easily have yeah. crashed into any population. Yeah, area.
0: and they had to consider their safety and the safety of everybody on the ground, so...
1: But at first, the authorities did assume that it was a terrorist type of attack, but they were listening to the radio chatter, and they understood that, okay, this isn't a terrorist attack or, you know, no religious or political agenda. Uh, They realized that it was just more of a crazy motherfucker out for a joyride. Wow, man, I can't believe I never heard about this. Well, it barely made the news, dude. It was pretty much pushed aside for more pressing issues at the time, like anything to do with Trump and his presidency. So, also, another note on Sky King... He apparently had a cell phone with him and was texting his wife, but those records have never been released. Mm. Sad. Yeah, it'd be interesting to read those because I'd love to hear what he was saying, you know, I want to because I want to know what is going through his head. Yeah, it's
0: right. Right. And I wonder, you know, if they spoke with his wife. Oh, yeah, they did. They later. Did. Okay, okay. Yeah, I just wondered what she had to say about it. As far as she
1: said anything about it, she didn't know. Like, there were no signs that he was suffering any depression or anything like that. He was a happy dude, like, on the outside. Wow, yeah. man. This guy just snapped right. out of nowhere. But these types of suicides are exceedingly Crazy. rare, but when they happen, they're usually immensely devastating, not only in terms of the wreckage and the damages they cause, but more so for the people who are victims, including their extended families. This also goes for the pilots who are typically suffering from some sort of mental health problem, as well as, you know, for their families. And the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, they released a report on a 20-year study on pilot suicides. And it was between 1983 and 2003. And the report included both verified suicides and those thought to likely be suicides by pilot. And in that study, it was found that 37 pilots either attempted to commit suicide or did commit suicide. 36 of those incidents resulted in at least one fatality, usually the pilot himself, and yes, they were all men. 24% of them had alcohol in their system, 14% had illicit drugs. The report found that the underlying issues for the pilots were as follows. At the top of the list is domestic and social problems. This is usually due to a pending divorce, personal issues with the airline management, or some other financial reason. Then it's legal trouble, which involved receiving reprimands, write-ups, demoted, among other things, such as criminal convictions or facing a criminal conviction. And then after that, it was pre-existing psychiatric conditions. Interesting. But now let's take a look at German pilot Andreas Lubitz. He had become a first officer in June of 2014 and had over 630 hours of flight experience.
0: No sweet nickname, though, apparently.
1: No. No. Everybody else in this list killed a bunch of people. Sky King deliberately avoided killing people.
0: Ah, okay. Yep. No nicknames for the wicked. Nah.
1: In 2008, he was treated for severe depression while in flight school, but his psychiatrist determined that his issues were fully resolved by 2009. In 2010, he moved to the U.S. where he completed pilot school and obtained his commercial license. He would then begin working for German wings based out of Germany, of course. And on March twenty fifth, two thousand and fifteen, Lubitz, the co-pilot, and Patrick Sondenheimer, the captain of the flight, would depart from Barcelona, Spain, heading toward Dusseldorf, Germany.
0: Dusseldorf. What? <laughs> hey, Dusseldorf. What up, bro? What's up, my Dusseldorf? Yeah, uh, just gonna. I'm just gonna hit my Dusseldorf real quick, and then I'll I'll be out there, bro. Make sure you don't forget the Dusseldorf.
1: The aircraft was an Airbus A320-211 capable of seating 150 people, including six crew members. There were people from 18 different countries on board. On this day, it was completely full. About a half an hour after taking flight, air traffic control noticed that the plane began to descend rapidly from the assigned 38,000 feet. They tried contacting the cockpit, but would lose radio contact. And at that point, they would send out a distress call notifying the proper authorities. In this case, the French military would respond and jets were scrambled. Inside the aircraft, and this is according to the findings of the investigation, Captain Sondenheimer would leave the cockpit, most likely to use a toilet. That is when Lubitz locked the door, leaving him the sole occupant inside the cockpit. Now remember, this is after 9-11, and the locking mechanisms to the cockpit had changed dramatically. This particular plane had a code lock, but unfortunately... This could be disabled from inside the cockpit as a backup safety measure. While already rapidly descending, Captain Sondenheimer made it back to the cockpit, but found that he was locked out. So he was, he was just banging on the door. He used the intercom so he could you know, talk to Lubitz in the cockpit, but he got no response. So he's just banging on the door,
0: yelling. He was even trying to break the door down as the plane's descending. Could you imagine that? Like, you just get up from your seat for two seconds, and suddenly you have no control of the plane and then you find out like a split second later that it's intentional it's not like an accident like the thoughts going through your head i'm sure it was insane bro explosions in your brain
1: that goes for everybody on the plane too like no one knows what's going on
0: well i mean to be fair like at first, they probably didn't know, but then, you know, he, he was probably trying to play it pretty casual, like not getting back into his door at first. But then as soon as the intercom starts going, like people, I'm sure, start freaking out. You know, the the tone on the airplane oh, yeah. just change. Well,
1: yeah. And they're watching the pilot trying to break the door down at yeah, that point. That's what I,
0: dude, that's, I know. Yes. You know, and you're, you're like nosediving. So you're like what, the, like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, you're like, man, I feel like we're descending, but we're not even close to where we should be. You know, so according to flight data, Lubitz had set the autopilot to descend
1: to 100 feet or 30 meters and would also use manual controls to accelerate a few times after that. During the investigation, they found that he had practiced setting the autopilot to 100 feet multiple times earlier in the day during the flight from Dusseldorf to Barcelona, while Sondenheimer was again outside of the cockpit. So he was he was practicing
0: premeditated.
1: Yep. After a period of 10 minutes, the plane went from 38,000 feet down to around 5,000 feet or around 1,500 meters, where Lubitz crashed it into a mountainside just east of a place called Le in southern in southeastern France, killing all 150 people. Oh, man, terrible. The flight recorder would record everything, and while Lubitz would never speak a word, the voice of Captain Sondenheimer could be heard yelling at Lubitz to let him in as well as the sounds of him trying to break the door down. But that isn't all you can hear. And as you can imagine, most everyone, if not everyone on board, could be heard screaming out of fear for their lives.
0: Ah, that's so spooky, dude. That's so terrifying. I
1: hate it. During the investigation, the authorities would search Lubitz's apartment and his computer. They found that he was searching for ways to commit suicide, among other things, including, quote, cockpit doors and their security provisions.
0: And MILFs and anal. And I'm not making fun. I'm not making fun of him or his internet search history. Women say that 100% of men would have that in their search history if their boyfriends and husbands wouldn't use incognito, preventing them from seeing it. That's just a fact. Okay.
1: Yeah, I saw that in the polls. That was in the Gallup poll and Reuters poll and I don't know whatever polls there are, but I saw that in the polls. Yeah,
0: you definitely have seen some polls. <sighs> But uh yeah I mean so <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry man. <laughs> um but yeah I know probably time and place for facts like that but I just it seemed like the right time and it seemed like the right place. Yeah. yeah. Well, you
1: know. they would also find a doctor's note stating that Lubitz was completely unfit to be flying. Oh, holy shit. No fucking way. Pilots nor their doctors were obligated to inform their employer that they were found unfit to fly. What? Yeah, man. No way, dude. Yeah, it was completely optional to say to your employer, Hey, man, check it out. I'm really fucked up in the head, and I don't feel well at all. I probably shouldn't be flying a plane until I get a handle on this. I mean, there was no obligatory self-reporting of such
0: matters. Right, and then you got Dr. Rumac up there delivering a baby in the middle of a storm.
1: Surely you can't be serious.
0: I am serious. And stop calling me Shirley.
1: The man is a legend. Yeah, dude. But I hope that there are better protocols put in place today, but man... How effective could it be? You know,
0: I mean, if a person goes off the rails and they're already in the cockpit and they're locking people out, there's really not. I mean, there's nothing you can do, bro. There's just takes that no. one snap decision, and it, it's all over. But uh, that well, still surprises me, though. That still surprises me that they don't have a mandatory or they didn't have some kind of like, you know, like like the doctor doesn't call up the organization and just say, yeah. hey, uh, just in case this information doesn't come to you from the pilot, I'm just letting you know. Yeah from my, you know, mandatory reporting <laughs> that he's See, been found unfit to fly.
1: <laughs> you know, I know it would be so easy, but they can't do that just because of the uh, HIPAA. Yeah. The HIPAA violation. <sighs> so yeah, It's just so sad. There has to be something put in place because the pilot is not going to go self-report. They want the money. They want to be up there flying, you know,
0: man, that is one instance where I just feel like, bro,
1: you know, Draw a line of the law and change that little part, amend that too. If a fucking psychiatrist finds a pilot unfit, that psychiatrist can tell the employer.
0: You know, yeah, it just they seems should so be important ordered to do that in that line of work. Yeah, you have hundreds Jeez. of lives at stake. Well, potentially thousands. Like, say the pilot crashes directly into a huge ass, you know, skyscraper or something. But, ugh, anyways,
1: yeah, crazy. Apparently, Lubitz was temporarily denied a U.S. pilot's license, specifically due to treatment he underwent for psychotic depression, for which he was taking prescription medications. And before his training to become a pilot, he was treated for suicidal tendencies, and apparently he had a lot of trouble with sleeping due to what he believed were problems with his vision.
0: And this was during the time that he was flying, too?
1: Yeah, yep, yes. And it's said that he thought he was going to go blind and would lose his license. I mean, he literally visited upwards of 40 different doctors.
0: Damn. Well, I hope there's a much better screening process these days to detect this sort of thing in our pilots. And props to pilots for their job just in general, first and yeah. foremost. I mean, they deserve mad respect.
1: Mad respect. Uh, Thank you, pilots. But it,
0: but every now and then, you know, you get one that pops off and you just, you just never know. So like you said, how effective could self-reporting truly be? Right.
1: Well, even if they, meaning those in charge of those things... They don't even know what to do. All they can really do is expand the access to mental health treatment. But they say that there's just no way to predict such an event.
0: Yeah, I guess we all just have to rely on them and trust whatever happens, happens. Okay, well, let's move on to the
1: next one. There is a bit of a disagreement in this case between the United States NTSB, who conduct investigations of crashes, and with the Ministry of Civil Aviation of Egypt who conducted their own investigation into this particular crash. On October 31st, 1999, it's said that First Officer Gamil al Batuti took control of a Boeing 767 and intentionally crashed the plane with 217 people on board into the ocean. The NTSB agreed with this conclusion, while the Egyptian authorities do not. This flight had two flight crews consisting of five pilots they would switch positions at a specified period of time into the flight for relief. There was no set time for the switch, but it was well established that the first crew would fly the plane for at least four or five hours before the switch would take place. On this flight, Batuti was a relief pilot with about 12,500 hours of experience. Only 10 minutes into the flight, he would enter the cabin and would try to get the command pilot to let him take control. At first, the command pilot refused, but Batuti wouldn't let up. Eventually, Batuti would convince the command pilot to give him control, and he would exit the cockpit. And, and Captain El-Habashi would remain in the cockpit as co-pilot, so the only two of them would be in the cockpit. While the plane cruised at 33,000 feet, Captain El-Habashi would leave the cockpit to use a toilet. The time is about one forty-eight a.m. Right after the captain leaves, Batuti starts saying, I rely on God or I put my trust in God in Arabic. Whoa, super scary. He would also disengage the autopilot, and for the next 10 seconds, the 767 would remain in a straight path without noticeable disturbance. Right about 1.50 a.m., he would switch both engines to idle, and within a second, the plane would begin a nosedive. This nosedive was a classic nosedive, just straight down, which caused zero G-force and resulted in weightlessness. It was fairly close to breaking the sound barrier
0: oh man and this is at 1 30 in the morning dude so you know all the passengers yeah. are like sleeping and like dozed off dark it's dark i mean you're over the o- he's over the water right yeah yeah so they're over the ocean that's just like the scariest fucking shit ever dude like i can't even i would probably die from fright well before the plane i'd have a massive heart attack dude, or something yeah. before I mean- the plane even hit
1: I was flying over the Atlantic at probably this time in the morning once, just deep over the ocean, right? And we hit some really, really bad turbulence, and that was just so horrifying.
0: Oh, yeah. It's enough to so make fucking you horrifying. piss your pants. Yeah, I think I you did. did. You just <laughs> you just look out and you just see blackness out there. Nothing but black, dude. You and know. when you're, you're falling,
1: man, if you're falling, nosediving in pure darkness, like you can't see the ground below you're the ocean, oh,
0: so scary. I mean, your best case scenario is a castaway situation. Oh, man. You know, yeah, Wilson Yeah, would you in the want to live? Nine yards. Have Wilson there with you. Four years on a deserted island.
1: Apparently, Captain El Habashi made his way back to the cockpit, or one of the other pilots got in. Either way, one of them was able to get inside the cockpit and take a little bit of control of the situation. At about 1.50 a.m., the plane had descended about... 650 feet or about 200 meters per second. That's fast, dude. That's straight up nosedive. So even for a pilot to be able to like get into the cockpit is extraordinary. That's crazy. Only seconds later, Batuti would cut off both engines. As he pulled back on his controls to try to level the plane, the captain would say, what is this? What is this? Did you shut off the engines? The captain then desperately pushed the throttles to maximum, but wouldn't have any effort but it wouldn't have any effect due to the fuel supply to the engines having been disengaged. At that point, the captain deployed the speed brakes to increase drag and correct the nosedive. With both engines off and no fuel, the electrical power would then cut out, leaving nothing with power, not even both flight recorders and the plane's transponder. Once the power was gone, the only data there is about what happened next comes from the primary radar, which is the basic form of radar you see in movies and on TV.
0: Yeah, you know, the little green screen with the line that goes in a circle and goes, boop, boop. Exactly. Boop. Yeah, but the radar the radar
1: showed that the plane had corrected itself at about 150 a.m. and 38 seconds, but overcorrected and began a very steep climb, and for the next 33 seconds, the plane would climb. It would climb from about 16,000 to 25,000 feet, or about 5,000 meters up to 7,600 meters. It would also change course about 60 degrees. It seems that it did a massive bank and entered a second steep dive descending about 330 feet, or 100 meters per second. At about 10,000 feet, or 3,000 meters above the Earth, the plane started to break apart. Oh, man. At approximately 1.52 a.m., the parts of the plane and the 217 people on board were now smashed into the ocean surface.
0: Oh, jeez, that all happened so quick and fuck! You know those people that were on the plane—just that roller coaster ride of the full nosedive, and then it corrects, and then it swings upward and begins going up, and you're back there with no control, strapped into your seat, just not, you know, no control whatsoever. Every, everybody's panicking around you, like 217 people on this plane the mm-hmm. captain's getting back in the cockpit and trying to do what he can. And you know there was a moment where people were like, "Okay, okay, we might we might be good." And that's before the plane starts breaking apart. Mm-hmm. And then there's the final bank. You know at that point, it's over. If you're sitting on that plane, you know like at that point, you're like, this is it. We're done. Yep. Yeah. yeah, once something falls off the plane, dude, oof. It's all over, dude.
1: The whole thing took about four minutes from when Patootie disengaged the autopilot to when the plane hit the water It was about four minutes. And while it might sound that it happened really fast, which it did comparatively, but four minutes is a hell of a long time when you're in a situation like that.
0: That's definitely true. Just a matter of seconds can seem like a matter of minutes when you're experiencing some kind of traumatic or, you know, adrenaline inducing situation.
1: Yeah, right. I remember I was jumping off this cliff. It was about 30-foot drop, and I was going to run. I was going to jump off this cliff, and we had this dog, and my friend was supposed to hold the dog because it would run all the time. Anytime you ran, it would chase after you. So I was like, hold the dog, man. I'm going to run and jump. So I ran right at the edge of the cliff. That fucking dog, he let it go. It ran right in front of my feet. I tripped over the fucking dog. I literally bounced my chest off the very edge of the cliff. Oh, my and gosh. Fell, and fell backward off this cliff, and I knew right below me, like you had to run and jump to clear rocks and shallow water, right? Right. I knew that I was fucked. So I'm falling backward and I'm just like, everything was slow motion. Like, yeah, in those seconds, head.
0: you got all these thoughts, I'll bet, you know, yeah. like competing like, well, this is, yep. this could be it, you know?
1: And I just remember telling myself, I was like, all right, just go limp, right? Just go limp, let this happen. It'll be over soon. I'll be in a hospital a little bit. Everything will be fine, right? Because when you go limp, you're less likely to get injured, right? Right, right. So I was just like, ah, oh, this is going to be it. And I just remember falling backward, and I was like, oh, man, and then push, splash. Luckily, when I hit my chest on the rock, I pushed really hard, just pushed off it really hard, and that helped. Let's, I was able to make that gap.
0: Whoa, it was scary. Oh, dude. That's insane. It was scary, man. That's probably the closest call that you've ever had. I've had a lot. <laughs> that was one. That was definitely one close call. Absolutely. That's gotta be top three. Yeah, I would say it's top three. I mean, look anyway, the- if you hadn't pushed you yeah, you'd be dead. Right. Yeah. So at least
1: severely injured. Like if I would have hit my head on a rock, yeah, I would have been I would have cracked open like a coconut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Wish I had been there to drink the juices, you know. I know, man. <laughs> Lap it up.
0: <laughs> That's really fucked up. I'm sorry.
1: So, the Egyptian authorities say that it was a mechanical failure, but like I said, the National Transportation Safety Board said it was intentional.
0: So, you decide. Oh, nice. Uh, you want to head over to Morocco? Dude, I'd love to check out Morocco. The food, bro. The The food. You know, I actually don't know that much about Morocco, other than what I've learned from the late Anthony Bourdain. Parts Unknown, if you've seen the show. I love that show. But now, you know, I I
1: used to like it a lot, but now it gives me a weird sense of nostalgia, like a really, really weird sense of nostalgia. I don't like it, and I don't know what it is about it, because I love the show. I love Anthony Bourdain, but his show just gives me the strongest sense of nostalgia. What is that?
0: Uh, Yeah, I agree. I get the same kind of feeling when I watch, because he had such a unique way of telling his stories it wasn't like any other travel show that i've ever watched and i really did get into it because of the areas that he chose to kind of highlight but knowing how he met his end and just knowing that it was intentional anytime i watch it i feel like i just think oh i wonder what he was thinking at this point or i wonder if this was the last episode, I wonder if this kept him going a little bit longer. And it's just kind of hard to watch now. It's too emotional. Yeah, when you
1: when you know what the end story is, you know, you go back and you're always trying to think, what's what's going through his head right now
0: in this episode, right? Totally. Like, what is totally. he thinking right now? When I mean, he had a great life, yeah. dude. And it makes some of the scenes more uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, you know, he'll exactly. be drinking and he's like, yeah, I'm sitting here in a bar at 1.30 a.m. in Thailand. <laughs> Probably had a little bit too much to drink. Everybody's probably had a little bit too much to drink, and you're kind of thinking, like, oh man, like, that's not good, bro. Uh, yeah, he used to party a lot, a lot of
1: heroin, a lot of cocaine, a lot of drinking. Yeah, failed relationships. Well, he was with his last wife for years, long time.
0: Apparently, the ex situation was, was it? messy, though.
1: Really nasty, muddled, and yeah. Uh... Okay, this next one's out of Morocco which is famous for the Atlas Mountains, by the way, and their crazy mix of culture and, of course, the rich history. Don't forget the hash, bro. Famous for the hash. Can't forget about the hash. I actually had some in Barcelona. It was, it was all right. Oh, well, aren't you lucky? Yeah, some <laughs> weird dude on a beach. He kept it in his hat, and like he just put it on his head. So it yeah, he had to have been sweaty, too. It's called Hatch.
0: Hatch. Everybody, everybody <laughs> Hat knows hash. that. Everybody knows that, man. Get with the times.
1: I guess. I have no idea. I'm inexperienced. <laughs> so on August 21st, 1994, pilot Eunice Kayari and his co-pilot, Sofia Fugugui, I think, Fugugui, and two other crew members and 40 passengers took off in a twin-engine ATR-42 turboprop and reached an altitude of about 16,000 feet or about 4,900 meters. Apparently, Eunice was suffering from relationship problems that he wasn't really handling all that well, and he was very distraught over it. We don't know the exact details, but the official story is that it was related to romantic reasons. Oh, relationship problems. That's all it fucking takes, man. Ten minutes into the flight, Eunice had disconnected the autopilot and manually put the aircraft into a steep nosedive. Sophia wasn't sure what he was doing, but would immediately send a distress signal when she noticed how committed he was to it. As she yelled for him to correct the plane and did everything that she could, the flight recorders would record her literally
0: screaming, Help, help, 3-8, the captain is, and then it ends. Oh, so sad. I honestly kind of wonder what the relationship issues were. I wonder if it was like between himself and the co-pilot, Sophia, you know, all that time in the air together.
1: And I was wondering the same thing. It seems like that's what it is. And I looked around, but not too hard at it. I read like seven or eight articles about this, and they're all, it's so much. So little information about this, and I couldn't find any details about what exactly those relationship problems
0: were. Yeah, that would be really interesting to know for sure and and depressing at the same time. But, you know, also the same old story, tale as old as time, if you will, you know, if the relationship issues were between them. Yeah,
1: scary shit. And I did want to say, you know, keep your private life separate from your professional life.
0: Yes, keep your private life separate from your pilot life. Pilot life, private uh, life. Pilot life, private life. Don't bring your problems to work with you, bro.
1: Right. But in this case, yeah, if that, they were
0: together... That wouldn't technically work in that scenario. It wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Nope. Nope. Didn't think about that.
1: What do you say we just finished this episode out with a couple crazy stories when a truly deranged lone wolf passenger caused a horrible, horrible wreck?
0: Ah, moving from the pilots to the passengers. I like it.
1: David Burke was said to be a man with a big chip on his shoulder. He had worked for U.S. Air, a company who owned Pacific Southwest Airlines, as a ticketing agent for 14 years. U.S. Air is now U.S. Airways. Early on in his career, while working for the same company in Rochester, New York, he was suspected of helping run a drug smuggling operation which brought cocaine from Jamaica into New York. It was never proven, but there was some evidence pointing to that being accurate. At any rate, he would quickly relocate to Los Angeles soon after those suspicions were being raised, effectively avoiding any attention. Notwithstanding those suspicions, Burke would be put on unpaid leave following an investigation into the theft of in-flight alcohol, something that amounted to under $100. Really pounding down those single-shot fireballs, you know what I mean? Disgusting. You know, there's actually an ongoing lawsuit against that company who makes fireball. It's called Sazerac Inc. or some shit. Uh, Well, there's a huge lawsuit alleging that there's actually no whiskey in the drink. And apparently, there's no whiskey in the single shots. Suffice to say... Burke didn't feel like he did anything wrong, and he would soon be fired on November 19th. And this put him in a very difficult position, seeing that he had seven different children with four different women.
0: Oh, man, a lot of mouths to feed.
1: Yeah, a lot going on there. Burke would go to his manager, who personally fired him, and try to get him to reverse the decision and give him his job back on multiple occasions, according to AP News. His manager, Ray Thompson, wasn't enthused by any of it and refused to rehire Burke each time he begged him. Burke, at some point thereafter, decided that he would exact his revenge. So he didn't give back his credentials, such as his key cards and all that stuff. So he still had access to the areas which he should not have had access to at that point. You know, critical areas, totally off limits to all non-employees, which he was a non-employee now. He also knew that Ray Thompson lived in the San Francisco area and would commute daily by plane to Los Angeles where they worked at the airport. In the days leading up to this, Burke had borrowed a Smith and Wesson 44 Magnum revolver from a coworker. Clearly, Burke had made up his mind. So, on December seventh, nineteen eighty-seven, Burke purchased a ticket on PSA Flight seventeen seventy-one, which he knew Thompson was on. But also on that flight were forty-two other people, including the president of Chevron USA and three executives. Once on board, Burke apparently wrote a message on one of those air sickness bags, which read. Hi, Ray. I think it's sort of ironical that we end up like this. I asked for some leniency for my family. remember? Well, I got none, and you'll get none.
0: Whoa, not a good note to get from someone that you just fired.:
1: Yeah, well, there's rather an interesting point to make about this note a little later.
0: All right, well, I look forward to hearing it.
1: So as usual, the cockpit voice recorder or the CVR would record the following events, although the audio recording is nearly impossible to make out. But the aircraft was cruising at 22,000 feet, or 6,700 meters, over the California coast. As one of the pilots was asking about flight data, the CVR would pick up two distinct sounds that sounded like gunshots. It's thought that Ray Thompson was the recipient of those shots, at least one of them. But right after that, one of the pilots reports that there were gunshots on the aircraft. The CVR would pick up the sound of the cockpit door opening and the voice of who was thought to be Debbie Neal a flight attendant, she could be heard saying, Captain, we have a problem. The captain could be heard with what is thought to be what kind of problem. And it was at that point that Burke arrived, and then he said, I'm the problem. And that's no joke. That was all recorded in audio.
0: That's one of the scariest things I've ever heard, bro. Imagine that moment. You have these gunshots that you're hearing. You're aware of a gun on board. A scared flight attendant rushes up, tells you there's a problem. The guy shows. It's like a movie, right? Right. Guy shows up with the gun and says, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. That's fucked up. They translate it into Spanish. Yo soy el problema. (laughs) You know, just like, I don't know. It's pretty crazy. It is, man. So ballsy move.
1: So let's get back to uh, where the plane reached its altitude and was cruising along at 22,000 feet. Everything was still calm. At some point, Burke would get out of his seat and head back toward the toilet. It is said that as he walked past Thompson, he dropped that note he allegedly wrote into Thompson's lap. Burke would go into the toilet for a few moments and come back out with a forty four Magnum in his hand. He would walk back up to Thompson, where he would shoot him at least once. It's also believed that he, ha- he may have shot someone else as well. These would be the first two gunshots heard on the CRV. And apparently there was another gunshot at some point because in the end, there were six empty casings still in the revolver. Only moments later, after shooting Thompson and someone else, he would walk into the cockpit. Two more gunshots would be heard, and it's believed that each pilot was shot once. Only seconds later, the plane was recorded going into a steep, steep descent. It's unclear if this was due to the pilots being shot and slumping forward over the controls, or if Burke intentionally aimed the aircraft downward. The flight recorders would apparently record the aircraft reaching a max speed of about 760 miles per hour. What? Holy shit, dude. That's basically the speed of sound, right? It's pretty much the speed of sound. The speed of sound is roughly 767 miles per hour. Unreal. In a commercial
0: plane, too. That's insane.
1: Yeah, doing a nosedive. It's hard to say where Burke is at this point, but wherever he is, there would be one more gunshot, and that would be a self-inflicted wound. And only after a few moments, the plane would break apart and crash into a field near the Santa Lucia Mountains near Cayucos, California. During the search, the 44 Magnum was reported to be found with the tip of Burke's finger stuck in the trigger, which is interesting to think about how that happened.
0: Whoa. Right. Kind of convenient there, I guess, if you're trying to investigate the scene and put one on one together, you know. Just you find an entire fingertip stuck in the trigger of the gun with a fingerprint and a commercial jet crashing at the speed of sound. Just the odds of that happening are have to be astronomically low, dude. Seriously.
1: Exactly. So obviously with the aircraft traveling at nearly the speed of sound and crashing into the earth, there would be pretty much nothing left of anything. There would be a crater of about two feet deep and about four feet across or half a meter deep and 1.2 meters across. So here's my issue, and not just my issue, but the issue presented by the Burks family. The note he allegedly wrote on an air sickness bag was said to be found and entirely readable. I know it's not impossible, but I feel, as well as the Burks, that the note would not have come out of that crash completely
0: unscathed. But again, not impossible, just really improbable. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, right? You'd think that any small piece of any flammable material would have just burned up, been instantly ignited and destroyed at least a little bit you know some singeing on the corners with that sort of explosion and that kind of fuel it just i don't know just makes sense you would think but
1: his perfect fingertip is lodged into the trigger and this note he wrote
0: is completely unscathed this is pretty weird yeah well regardless of the oddity of that just like the odds of that it is great in a way that that happened because it gives context to a situation that otherwise no one would have any idea what was going on.
1: Well, Scott, that horrible crash was the second worst mass murder in modern California history. Oh, no shit. That's according to Wikipedia as of May of 2021. And I'm not aware of any other massive loss of life caused by one person in California since then.
0: Sure. I mean, there was Stephen Paddock, one state over in Las Vegas, who killed 58 and injured 546 and that is the worst loss of life in U.S. history by a single person. Yeah, right. Uh,
1: that was the Route 91 Harvest Festival. There were something like 22,000 people there. So he injured or killed about 36% of the attendees.
0: Oh, man, that's a troubling statistic. That's, that's huge, isn't it? That's, that's huge, bro. Well over a quarter of the people there. percent
1: and that's not even including all the people with PTSD, you know, all that stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah, or yeah, exactly. I mean, just like that those we'll people never were shot, you know. Yeah, like the people that are just forever messed up because of that.
1: Well, the worst mass murder suicide in California occurred on May seventh, nineteen sixty four. Francisco Gonzalez was a twenty seven year old warehouse worker who had been dealing with some difficult financial and marital problems for a handful of months leading up to this day. He was apparently very deep in debt and had been expressing his intent to kill himself for a little while at least. And this didn't fall on deaf ears either, but you know, there really
0: wasn't much that could be done. Especially in the mid-1960s. And again, to touch on a former pilot's words, or the NTSB or whoever said, there's just no way to predict these things. So there you have it. Yeah.
1: It was reported that he was telling his friends and family that he, quote, would die on either Wednesday, the 6th of May, or Thursday, the 7th of May.
0: That's very direct and to the point. There's nothing even remotely cryptic about that statement. It's
1: also reported that starting in the week prior to this horrible day, he went from mentioning his upcoming death every now and then to literally talking about it on a daily basis.
0: You'd think somebody would have stuck him in a rubber room. You know, I mean, cause yeah, somebody's like, yeah, like it goes from this person's a little bit weird to this person's definitely going to fuck some shit up. Yeah. You I mean, know?
1: you're seeing a progress of him, like getting more violent towards himself, you know, with just if, words. But if I heard threat. someone
0: saying that every day, I would say something yeah. to somebody about it. I would. Yeah,
1: I would definitely bring him somewhere and be like, you need some help, man. And like David Burke he would also bring a smith and wesson revolver but he would buy a 357 magnum from a friend of a friend
0: oh well we all know that old story eh, i know a guy knows
1: a guy and get this done yeah i know i know a guy knows a guy and get this done i know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy like five guys down
0: (laughs) yeah right
1: (laughs) we'll find him eventually (laughs) i want to do a christopher walken accent that's great (laughs) i'll
0: teach you sometime man (laughs) i know you're gonna have to i know a (laughs) guy wow yeah Yeah. just you know like that
1: moving on like that a little more walking-y. the day before the massacre Francisco would take a flight to Reno, Nevada, where he would gamble all night, and he would even tell casino employees that it didn't matter how much he money he lost because in his words, it won't make a difference after tomorrow. Oof, dark. And before boarding birdie, <laughs> and before boarding his flight to Reno, his friends would say that he was showing them the gun, Jeez. and that he even told one of his friends that he was planning to shoot himself with it. So many signs and just like, "Oh, okay." You all right, yeah. you're going to shoot oh. yourself with that gun and you're about to get on this flight and you're telling everyone you're going to yeah. kill yourself. Huh. Cool story, Francisco. <laughs> yeah, right? Francisco would board the twin-engine turboprop Fairchild F-27 owned by Pacific Airlines, now Southwest Airways, and was heading to San Francisco with 36 people aboard. There was one scheduled stop in Stockton, California, where two passengers would exit while 10 others would enter. This brought the total on board to 44 people. At six forty AM, the flight would go airborne, and the flight itself was pretty short, about an hour and a half from tarmac to tarmac. So about ten minutes into it, air traffic control would receive what was said to be a high pitched but garbled radio message. They tried to get a response, but only got silence, and then the plane would disappear from radar. Francisco had seated himself directly behind the cockpit, and this was the day when you could just go onto a plane and you could just sit wherever you wanted. And you could drink whatever you wanted. There was no drink limit back then. You could smoke
0: cigarettes and cigars like there was no tomorrow. Cabins would just be clam-baked, just thick with smoke, bro.
1: Thick with smoke.
0: Kids running around smoking cigars, just chewing the hell out of the other end, you know? Oh, yeah. Hey, ma, ma, get that flabby stinking ass over here and give me some of that nip milk, would you already? I'm thirsty as fuck over here. Can't you see, lady? What kind of ma is you anyways?
1: Come on, lady. Give your boy what he wants. He looks like he's about to kill someone.
0: He's not my boy. Well, he sure likes you, though,
1: mister. Where's his mother?
0: You're my ma. Now come over here and give me some of that nim milk, ma.
1: No, oh, no. Oh.
0: <coughs> Get off me, you <coughs> little sick <coughs> bastard.
1: Get off me. No, <coughs> no. <coughs> someone, hit him. Hit him <coughs> off. Grab that lamp. <coughs> <coughs> Help me. No. No. <coughs> ah. <coughs> <coughs> about 10 minutes into the flight Francisco would grip the revolver in his hand stand up and walk toward the cockpit where Captain Clark and First Officer Andres were at the controls he would lift the weapon and shoot Captain Clark first, twice killing him he then aimed it at Andres and shot him once, which critically wounded him he was able to radio a last message where he said I've been shot, we've been shot oh my god, help The plane was only flying at 5,000 feet, or 1,500 meters, and after both pilots were shot, the plane took a steep dive as you'd expect. It traveled 35 feet, or about 10.5 meters per second, at about 400 miles per hour, before Andrus would attempt to correct the diving aircraft. He was able to bring it to a sharp climb to about 3,200 feet, or 980 meters, before it is believed that Francisco shot him a second time, which proved fatal. He would then shoot himself before the plane took its final plunge into a hillside near the city of San Ramon, California. Investigators would find the .44 Magnum holding six empty cartridges. It was also found that Francisco had bought a hefty chunk of life insurance at the San Francisco airport, which would go to his wife upon
0: his death. What? That's crazy. What, he just, like, was strolling through the airport and he saw some kind of a insurance life insurance salesman like in a booth over by the magazines and everything he's like oh yeah i'm just gonna take a quick stop in here real quick take out a policy that's not foreboding in any way
1: insurance here anyone need insurance here I got insurance
0: <laughs> yeah you yeah Life life insurance, life insurance. <laughs> special deal for the pilots life insurance
1: <laughs> well i found out that it was pretty common to purchase insurance at airports in the united states they don't do it here anymore, at least not in the way they were doing it back then. But it's apparently still happening in other countries like Taiwan and Japan. Scott, you know how they sell those the whale meat over there in Japan out of vending machines?
0: Yes, yes.
1: That is how they were selling insurance at airports.
0: Oh, okay. Like you mean yeah. portion wise or variety wise or <laughs> what do you mean? That must have been
1: variety. I don't know. So you'd go in there, you'd put in quarters. And I guess he'd buy up to $62,500 worth of insurance, apparently. So this vending machine insurance started with a businessman named John M. Shaheen, who was also Richard Nixon's ambassador to Columbia and was an advisor to the Office of Strategic Services and a president of an oil refinery.
0: Whoa, that sounds like an entitled son of a bitch right there. Corrupt as fuck. Oh, yeah. There was a lawsuit in nineteen sixty three and read in part
1: in recent years, air trip travel insurance has developed into a business of tremendous volume. for example, a recent annual report filed by a group of underwriters who handle a large portion of air trip insurance business in the United States showed total premium collections for the year to be three million three hundred and eighty two thousand two hundred and sixty one dollars in the same year, the group wrote air trip insurance for and paid out $1,388,839 in
0: losses. Whoa. Corrupt as fuck, just as I said. And I'm sure whoever filed that lawsuit lost it as well. Probably disappeared into a stadium somewhere.
1: And I can't think all the quarters they'd had to collect all the time. It's a lot of quarters. That is a lot of quarters.
0: Yeah, that is, dude. Just going to every, it was probably a full-time job to go to every one of those oh, yeah. insurance machines and collect all the quarters out of it.
1: Right. So apparently in Colorado, a man named John Graham had purchased some life insurance for his mother. The year was 1955. John had also planted a bunch of dynamite in his mother's suitcase right before she boarded the flight. He washed her board, and not long after, the plane carrying 44 people had exploded, killing everyone on board on their way to Portland, Oregon. Earlier on, he was suspected of burning down his mother's restaurant to collect insurance from it as well. He and his mother did not have a good relationship. She actually placed him in an orphanage when he was a child, and then she became a successful businesswoman, but she never returned to pick him up. Obviously, this turned their relationship pretty sour. They smelled explosives in the baggage area and tracked it down to be in one of the suitcases. And then they checked on the families of those with the insurance and found John. They searched his house and found all the same bomb making parts there and in the car that he dropped her off in. And then he would later confess, and then he would later be executed in the gas chamber on January 11th, 1957.
0: Wow. That's crazy. Dude, he did not do his due diligence, by the way. Like, his grand master plan didn't include getting rid of any evidence from his car or his house. <laughs> like, no, he, he did not. Wow. Plan that. That's crazy. Like, how does someone do that? Judicially execute someone? Um, <laughs> no. Like, the the things I mentioned before, but... Yeah, I guess also that.
1: Yeah, I don't know how you'd kill your mom. Like, well, the, I mean, in that case, he hated her because she left him at an orphanage forever. Then she got super rich and never went back to pick him up. Just kind of like, I don't want you anymore. Yeah. But she was still in, like, contact with his sister, so... Man. He was like, well, fuck you, then. Yeah,
0: that's pretty messed up. I mean, you can see why he would maybe feel some type of way about that yeah
1: i mean i don't condone it i don't absolutely not not. good do not plant dynamite in suitcases people hell no or
0: anywhere you ever thought about you ever thought about being a commercial pilot coop oh man i don't know i don't have the balls for that bro i don't have the big cojones
1: to do that shit (laughs) you
0: don't have the cojones grandes for that kind of i uh... don't have the cojones grandes (laughs) You know, I actually have a buddy who's um, trying to get with uh, Alaska. Really, just on an unrelated personal note, and he's just—he's a young guy. He's been uh, interviewed, and yeah, he wow. might—he might get the job, dude. It's just hard to like—I've never known anyone like on the track to becoming a pilot. No. Um, my my dad actually did want to be a pilot when he was younger. He went through all the training and everything and then just like had, because of some issues with his vision, they were like, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, vision's Um, a big part of it. It's a huge part of it. So he just, I almost had a pilot father. That would have been cool, bro. Dude, free mileage everywhere you go. Your whole family flies for free, bro. Oh, that's so amazing. Yeah, that'd be epic. Would have changed everything. I never entertained being a pilot, but there was a period when I was pretty serious about wanting to be like a skydive instructor. (laughs) I don't know if everybody goes through that. You just like adrenaline seekers. You know, I was looking into skydive programs when I was living in Montana for a brief period. And then I drove to the place and it had been shut down. So my dreams never were realized into reality. Crushed. Crushed. Immediately crushed. Never got there. But you know what? Now I just value myself. I've seen too many videos where people's parachutes are getting fucked up and they break all their limbs when they hit the ground. You know, now we have all these like videos of people botching it. I'm like, nah, you know what? I think I'm good.
1: Yeah, I know, man. I'm too safe these days. Like all those adrenaline things I used to want to do, I'm like, I don't want to do that anymore. Same. Because I've seen too many videos. (laughs) Same. Same. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. My survival instincts kicked in finally. Uh, You know, you mentioned the um, diving instructors. I brought a story up in my mind about a a dive instructor that I was actually going to add to this. I guess I can just paraphrase it. So he was a pilot, and he had some people in the back of a plane, and he was going to go up to you know, drop them off so they can do the skydive. So he's flying. There's a co-pilot with him. And he did a hard land at one point, which is just not not a big deal. He still landed the plane, but it was kind of a bouncy one, right? But he kind of took that personally, even though no one cared. They're just like, Oh, that's kinda rough. But so they're going up in the air, they're flying up to do the skydive thing. In midair, he just stands up and he's like, I gotta get some air, I gotta get some air. And he walks back, opens the door and just jumps out. And everyone's like, What the fuck? And he didn't have an he didn't have a parachute on. He just was like, I need the air, I need air. <laughs> and he ran back there and just opened the door and just leapt out. Didn't try to grab Whoa. onto anything. Oh. Yeah. They think Oh my god. They think that he was so depressed about the hard landing that he didn't want to live with that and he just jumped to his death.
0: Jeez. Wow, that's so fucked Fucking up. Crazy. On another note, more humorous than that one. Um, I knew a guy who was telling me about some special training he did. So he finished basic and then uh did some more training as an airman, like a, a parish a paratrooper. And he was talking about, this is like personal account from this guy. He's talking about when they went up there, one of the guys was getting cold feet, one of his uh, comrades. And the drill instructor was having none of it. So he was like, you know, sir, I don't want (laughs) to jump. I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump, sir. And he was like, okay, well, you know, why don't you just count backwards from 10, see how you feel. And he got to eight. He was like, 10. Nine and right about there, the drill sergeant literally kicked him out of the back of the plane. He was already strapped up into his parachute. Kicks him out the back before he has a chance. You know, he's (laughs) he's thinking he's going to get out. Uh, And this guy was huge. You know, he was like a size twelve like boot right in the chest. And uh, yeah, he didn't have a choice. but uh, was he
1: doing he wasn't doing tandem though he was doing it alone solo. he's doing it
0: alone sir first he's solo jump oh. yep oh man
1: that's a great way to do your first solo jump <laughs> he made it right yeah he survived he was fine Ooh, scary and yeah. he, he did it he's still doing it
0: yeah um that part i don't know this is just the account it's probably uh, his first and last like i'm not doing it anymore <laughs> well this was a guy like near him this wasn't him oh okay. so he just he witnessed this happen to mm-hmm. another somebody he was fine with it he was just like yeah let's hoorah you know what i mean he just leapt out of the plane yeah uh, my buddy but uh that guy was not so lucky but yeah he, he was fine in the end wow wow yeah. sometimes well, you don't need sometimes you don't want the time to decide you nah, know i guess sometimes you just need to get the boot make the boot make the decision <laughs> you just need to get the boot bro Act- absolutely
1: dos boot Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is going to be it for today's show. We hope you enjoyed,
0: and please don't forget to just click that subscribe button down there. Also, don't forget to like and share. Yeah, and you can also email us at paranautica at gmail.com. That's P-A-R-A-N-A-U-G-H-T-I-C-A at gmail.com. Give us some ideas, you guys, on things that you would like to hear about. Yeah, we want to know what you want to hear about. Yeah, we'll give you mad credit for it on the show. Follow us on Twitter. Just let us know, what are your thoughts?
1: Also, we suggest you find us on Spotify, Anchor, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google
0: Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch up with you next week for another episode of something, but we'll see you then. We'll see you then, everyone.